As a dairy farmer, today's guest felt a huge disconnection between his milk and the people drinking it, so he set out to connect the farmers with the eaters. From Blue Tribe Media, this is the Good Business Podcast, the show where we talk to business leaders, social entrepreneurs and innovators about aligning profit with purpose and how you can make doing good good for business. Now here's your host, James McGregor. Today I'm talking with Robert Pekin, who's the founder of Food Connect. So it's a dynamic multi-farmer food distribution enterprise with an innovative community-based distribution system. So as a dairy farmer, um, Robert felt a huge disconnection between the milk that he was producing and the people actually drinking it. And as you'll hear, after a series of life-changing events, he went on this amazing journey that triggered a passion for creating a fairer food system for all farmers and for exploring ways to help people connect to those who grew and processed their food. So as a former organic dairy farmer and market gardener, he's become known as a practical and hands-on social entrepreneur, and he's working at the system's end of changing the way business can change the way that the current food system works. Robert's well-known speaker in the fair food movement, he loves his blended family of four children, and his favorite foods are beer, butter, and good bread. Not sure if it's in that order. Anyway, let's check out my interview with Robert. people who don't know you, uh, why don't you start with introducing yourself and tell us who you are. Cool. Okay, so my name's Robert Pekin. I'm an ex-farmer, um, uh, both dairy and then a little bit later on market gardener, who through circumstances, which we'll get into later on, founded Food Connect in about 2004. Yeah. And after, well, it's been a journey of me discovering um, more about food systems and agricultural systems that needed unpacking and uh, built it around a, a business model that from my angle and from an Australian context was the vehicle that I've sort of used over the years to try and change or focus mainly on the food distribution as an empowering way to solve the conundrum between paying farmers what they should be paid and mm-hmm. having really good food affordably made to to the eater. Great. And what we describe as your superpower? <laughs> Oh, my superpower! It's not really a superpower, but but it does really, you know, it it lights a fire in my belly, which is the sense of equality. I have a really um, strong superpower around equality. I really just detest injustice with a passion. So sometimes it can backfire, but nonetheless, I own it. Yep. And where, where do you think that drive to fix inequality comes from? What's the fire that's firing that? Yeah, I've often thought, where did that come from? I think I was just born with it. I, I When I look back to my school years, I did sort of, you know, stick up for kids who were picked on. I never really, you know, got was clicky. I was sort of, you know, friends with most people. and But I, I, but I do remember um, really having that looking after the underdog side of things. And as years went on, when I, you know, discover obviously more about myself you know the 14 to 24 year olds that strong sense of social justice not that I knew anything about you know social justice in the global context but but it was there so I don't know you know like I you know being a dairy farmer's son and the oldest of nine you know egalitarianism was obviously built into our framework but there was no real strong you know grandfather grandmother father or mother because everyone was so busy that really gave me that you know, that I inherited that off or I got that from. It's just, just something that I sort of later on in the, in the years when I was really going through um, the abyss, sort of centred on it as a real reason for my existence was to do something about inequality. 
Yeah, so it sounds like that was uh, built into your DNA from the beginning. Mm, yeah. Yeah. So tell us something about you that people may not know. I mean, a few people do know now because I often request it when I um, go on speaking gigs is, is I travel by train. I love traveling by train. It's just uh, so convenient, so flexible, so efficient. So I'm, I'm actually getting more and more into traveling everywhere by train, even all the way down to Melbourne um, from Brisbane. Just, uh, you know, it might take three days to get there, but it's an incredibly, I, I just, yeah, love it. Love traveling Enjoy by train. Day. So you might be sad if the high-speed rail that was always talked about ever gets built between Brisbane and Melbourne. You might actually be disappointed because you'll be there in half a day. Yeah, that's right, and more people will be on it. Um, whereas at the moment, you go um, from Brisbane to Melbourne, and if you want solit- if you want a, a bit of solitary time, it's the ticket. Yeah. So tell us, we'll get into the bit of the backstory in a minute, but just to set the scene for everyone, tell us about the Food Connect and all the Food Connect Foundation. And, uh, yeah, what, what is it? What does it do? Yeah, sure. Those sorts of things. Yeah, so Food Connect started off as my simple little idea that was based on deep philosophical learnings that I'd unpacked over the last probably seven years since losing the dairy farm and then starting up the market garden around this concept called community-supported agriculture, which was based on the philosophies of, of anthroposophy and the Schumacher, Small is Beautiful, and a few other little sort of things that I cherry-picked from other books that I was reading. But it was in its simplest way, it was basically was to facilitate direct delivery between farm and customer and provide a place where those uh, two disconnected groupings of people could connect and, you know, bring some sort of pricing equality and also flavour and, and, and wonder back into seasonal, you know, appreciating seasonal food and, and just, you know, um, going with what the farmer grew. And, and working with the farmer to maybe grow more or push the seasons, but but obviously, you know, farmers who grew ecologically, I was pretty, this is my equality sense coming out, I was pretty insistent that it wasn't about organic farming or biodynamic farming or, or any other methodology that needed a certification. It was really about building trust and people to understand the nuances and between, so the eaters, having more of understanding of the nuances that, grow in, that go into growing really good food and landscape management. But on the farmer's end, I didn't really want to set them apart. I wanted them to basically be good farmers. I really wasn't too bothered by which methodology. I really wanted to empower the farmer to unfold, you know, their highest potential in terms of growing food or whatever it is they wanted to do on the landscape. In some cases, they decided, you know, after I presented them with a little farm character identification um, checklist, they would go, ah, I don't really want to farm. Like, I'm only doing this because my father um, told me to do it. So it was a simple little idea based in Brisbane using um, 30-odd farmers in the first instance and empowering them to connect with consumers. And I was just this this meant-to-be invisible facilitator <laughs> providing the logistics and the experience that I'd had over the previous seven years to that piece. And then over the years, it sort of evolved and, and obviously my first group of, um, of people who come and work with me on it were a whole bunch of Brisbane mums and they opened my eyes to you know, a whole bunch of things that I didn't know about as a, as a, as a dairy farmer. And previously I was an aircraft engineer, so they opened my eyes up to a whole bunch of things around food and nutrition and, you know, problems with women because most women have their ecological eyes opened up when they have their first baby. And that's when they really go, wow, I, I just want to nurture this baby with the best food and I want to give away, you know, all of the stuff that, that's obviously marketed to them in, in supermarkets and whatnot. And then as the years went on, my social justice eyes were opened up to the inequality in terms of, you know, the Western society had taken away subsistence agriculture, 
from a lot of third world nations and, and force them to grow cash crops. And my idea around having local coffee and local cocoa beans and other things wasn't really in line with the values around social justice. So uh, we evolved into becoming much more nuanced around, around where the food should come from. Because originally I started out with just a two-hour radius and then I went to a three-hour radius and then a heap of farmers from Dullingen said, we're being absolutely screwed down here. We're halfway between Sydney and Melbourne and can you come down? And I went down there and I met all these amazing citrus and garlic and um, avocado, just amazing growers who were just growing fantastic produce, but they were being slaughtered by um, the wholesalers. And uh, so I went to a five-hour radius in a fast car. And then by about 2009, there was a lot of people really wanting to replicate what we'd created in Brisbane. So we set up the Food Connect Foundation as a not-for-profit to sort of be the, I suppose, the, the custodian of that, of that replication, as I really thought about this wasn't a cookie-cutter model. And then as um, last year, we were successful in bringing 530-odd people together to purchase uh, a massive warehouse where now mm. roughly 30 enterprises coexist with Food Connect all around this idea of paying farmers to produce fantastic quality food and makers and providing them with a wholesale retail outlet that that was ethical. Yeah. So as I think you described them as the eaters, as an eater, if I'm wanting to connect with a particular producer, what, how does Food Connect, what's the experience I have in terms of do I go online, do I... Do I ring someone up? Or how, how do I get access to produce from a farmer? Yeah. What's the experience I get? <laughs> in, the, in the old days, it was ring them up um, because yeah. online technology was fairly non-existent in 2004. And certainly there was none of the social media that was around. So it was, you'd ring the number and place an order manually. And then we would, at the end of the week, we'd ring all the farmers up and say, you know, we need this amount of avocados, this amount of potatoes, all that sort of stuff. And then we would pack, and then the farmers would harvest over the weekend or, you know, Friday, Saturday, Sunday um, or Monday. It would arrive in the warehouse Monday and Tuesday and then we would pack it and you would receive it via a, um, a community drop-off spot all around Brisbane um, on Tuesday, Wednesday or Thursday. And that was the... So there was a couple of other things I'd thought about in those those abyss years of wandering the Tasmanian wilderness going, what the hell, what the hell do I do with my life after I lost the farm? Was I thought that we should only work a four-day week and we should never work being an ex-dairy farmer, which never really worked the sort of hours that I worked or in the dark too much, you know, when made to, I wanted to have some sort of, you know, balance because fruit and veg in particular, you, you go to any central markets and they're all, they all work from 11 p.m. till 8 a.m., you know, like it's, it's, a, it's a nighttime activity. And when you see the, you know, what comes out of those working hours, when you meet some of the forkies and the agents and all that sort of stuff, it's not a good existence. So basically now it's online, you make an order online, same thing, you know, Thursday we're ringing all the farmers telling them how much to harvest, Monday it all arrives and then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday it's packed and sent out and it's in your fridge mm. by that afternoon. Great, awesome. Yeah. So now you've, you've mentioned the word abyss a couple of times and a reference to, I guess, your original days, you know, growing up in a, in a farming family and as a dairy farmer. Uh, so that sounds like it was very formative in where you are today. Can you talk us through what happened yeah. there? Yeah, so, well, what happened was I bought uh, the farm off mum and dad. Mum and dad, I'm the oldest of nine, so none of the other siblings were really that interested. Um, so I come back and chair farm with dad for a couple of years and got all excited about, you know, different approaches and methodologies to farming in a much more sustainable way. And dad was sort of into that. He was, he was into some of it, but not all of it. And uh, one day... Well, two or three years in, I said to dad, you know, why don't you want to go down this pathway? And 
He said, oh, I'm just, you know, I'm just too old. It's um, my innovative years are over. And if you want to bloody do it, then you're going to have to buy the farm off me. So, so that was what I did. And I bought at a pretty peak, you know, in terms of milk prices were pretty good. A couple of, couple of very good years, very good seasons in terms of rain and things like that. And uh, basically I bought it in April and by J- June, the opening prices, because we have in dairy farming, you have an opening prices released and it was 20% below our forecasts. Um, and below the previous year. And uh, I was looking down the barrel of some pretty tight years. And then we went into a really wet winter and come out to a snap dry spring and a drought. And then we didn't get the autumn break in the next year. And uh, things progressively got worse. So worse, in fact, that uh, milk prices dropped another 10% and then another 5%. We had another two years of drought. And uh, I was, by this stage, pretty, I'd gone pretty much insane. I was doing some rather stupid things and looking down, contemplating all sorts of not really good things that I was going to do to myself to end the pain. But thankfully, through a series of events, I decided to give up and let the whole thing go. So I, I lost the whole farm and had a, about a 90 grand debt on my shoulders, lost every single little thing. And uh, my uncle said, why don't you piss off to Tasmania? And my brother gave me a couple of grand and I uh, bought a bit of camping gear and disappeared. The dairy farm was in Victoria, in the Western Districts of Victoria. Mm. And uh, disappeared to um, Tasmania to lick my wounds, as it were, and um, hopefully recover from this because I was in a really bad dark space. And and that was where all I took with me was all these books that I'd had that I'd never read because I liked to read and I was quite philosophical about um, approach to life. And so I read these books while I basically lived in the Tasmanian bush for the next six months and um, formative years. Those were the years where I, you know, got over myself. I met a few Indigenous people and realised that what I was going through, you know, four generations, losing four generations of farm was nothing compared to the to the, the pain we'd inflicted yeah. to Indigenous people. And, and that gave me a bit of a kick up the arse in terms of, you know, what I'm going through was spilt milk compared to what they were going through. And here they had the patience and the um, patience and the wisdom to, to give me some advice. And, you know, and set about being a solution rather than being angry about it. And I was pretty angry. You know, they, you know, a few people gave me some insights into, you know, if you focus on being the solution around the problem that caused what you caused, then you can hopefully um, um, help other people avoid that situation. So, so that was, they were the really, the silver lining, I suppose, on that very, very yeah. dark cloud. Yeah. And so you had that experience, and I guess you probably a bit of a reset. So where did Food Connect come into the story then? Yeah. So I was sort of this agricultural journeyman. I'd set up a market garden after that six months in Tasmania and said, right, I'm going to do this CSA and work it out for myself, um, practice it. And so a wonderful farmer who wasn't using all of his land down near, just outside of Kingston near Hobart, leased me six acres, just a six acre paddock for free for six months. I just had to work a day a week for him um, welding. Mm -hmm. And I could use these tractors, his irrigation, everything. And I set about starting a market garden around this concept called community supported agriculture and put that on the ground for about two years on this farm and really, you know, and wholesaled to a couple of restaurants and sold to about 20 or 30 people and a couple of other people joined me on that um, experiment, I suppose. And that really gave me an insight into uh, a few things. And then I got a call from a couple of dairy farmer mates back in Western Victoria and they said, can you come and show us how to do that? And so I left that farm and and handed that over to Bob and Joy who'd come and join me. And uh, this in Tasmania, left that farm and basically went on this journey around Australia, helping farmers 
set up CSA. So I went into the background because, you know, that pain of losing the dairy farm, I really didn't want to go back into being the front person. And so I basically helped farmers set up CSAs, set up about nine CSAs around Australia, one in West Australia, a couple in New South Wales, a couple in Victoria, and then ended up in Brisbane. I did, I did part of an anthroposophy, the first year of the year of anthroposophy that all Steiner teachers have to go through. Mm-hmm. did that, and that was really great in me getting a bit more deeper understanding of, of Steiner's view of well, associative economies and, and very different ways of thinking about how we can balance out the hands, the head and the heart in terms of real concrete business models on the ground, which Food Connect follows. And then when I got to Brisbane, I helped a few farmers set up a CSA. But along those two years, that last two years, I'm in my you know, fifth, sixth and seventh years after learning, losing the farm. And I was becoming known as this bloke who would just rabbit on forever about CSAs. And uh, a couple of farmers, well, not a couple, quite a few farmers were saying to me, ah, I couldn't grow 30, 20, 30, 40 things sequentially, weekly for a bunch of city eaters. That's just too bloody hard. But I grow four or five things. And if you find a bunch of other farmers who can grow all the things that I don't grow, then come and give me a call. And I kept putting them into this book, but not having this epiphany yet around a multi-farmer idea. So after about two years of me speaking and farmers saying this to me, I suddenly, I'm a bit slow learner, you know, 4B2 whacked me in the head one day and I went, holy shit, what have I been, buddy? And this was, I could see this being the model in the Australian context because I was frustrated that this idea could only really suit farmers within half an hour to an hour of a capital city. It wasn't really going to reach out to those farmers like my own dairy farm, which was a good hour and a half away from Melbourne. So I went, oh, this is it. And that was where the genesis of Food Connect, this idea of a multi-farmer community-supported agricultural box system, come from. And I was just really lucky one day I was coming back from a farm where I was giving the seven farmers a bit of a a weekend course in what a CSA was. And uh, there was this hell of an argument. The, The Queensland Fruit and Vegetable Growers Association were having a big barney with the central supermarkets. It was very... The animosity was high, it was very personal, and they were on the radio having this full-on argument, and I got back home and rang ABC Radio and said, uh, who was that guy from Queensland Fruit and Vegetable Growers? And they gave me his name, but she also said, the producer of the show said, what do you do? And I told her what I did, and she said, you're on the radio tomorrow morning, Um, we've got to hear this. So I'm on the radio the next morning, Um, Steve Austin from 612 ABC in Brisbane interviewed me, and the phones went nuts. And all of a sudden we had a customer base and I rang all these farmers and I said, here's an opportunity. Do you want to do you want to do it? And they all said, let's go. So that was that was it. And then about two weeks in, so a whole bunch of those original mums who rang the radio station were coming um, to this farm where we were packing all the boxes. And after about two weeks, they said, oh, this is hard work. You know, we've got to bundle all the kids in the car. It's, it's basically a full day. Listen, if you can get all these boxes to our houses, we'll tell our neighbours and our place can be the pickup spot for all the people who live around us, uh, whether they know us or not. And there the, um, the city cousin idea was, was born from these mums who just said, you know, we've got a better idea. And so I, that night I was talking to one of the farmers and he said, we've got to, we've got to come up with a, with a funky name for them. And in my sleep, I woke up and went, city cousin, you know, we've got country cousins, we've got to have city cousins. So that was that. And basically, I mean, apart from adding wholesale, doing home delivery and a whole bunch of other things, it's exactly the same model as it was, you know, 16 years ago. 
Yeah. So can you talk us through the theory of these CSAs? What are they? Yeah, so the, how, how do they work? Yeah. So the basic philosophy is you're divorced from market forces. So um, it's around the real cost of producing quality, you know, regenerative, regeneratively produced ecological food, highly nutritious. And obviously being local means you maintain a lot of nutrition anyway. Mm. But establishing a relationship where the farmer just does the farming. They don't have to focus on anything else. They, you know, the marketing, the logistics, whatever else it is that the farmer isn't, or the farmers aren't good at, the city folk surround them with that ecosystem support and provides them with all what they need to unfold them becoming a, you know, uh, an amazing farmer and being acknowledged in the process. And then the city folk come together and form a core group that says, here's what we'd like to eat. What can you grow? And they design the boxes and they design what it is that they think they can use on a week by week basis that can nourish them and their family. And so you build this relationship between eaters and the, and the farmers um, in such a way where they set the price internally, they, they frame the discussion and how we can improve year on year, so what the farmer can do more of, and basically develop a really tight relationship that takes away that transactional nature of the market system. Mm. So that's at the root of it. There's a couple of other deeper philosophical things around supporting the entrepreneur and, and supporting an ecosystem of entrepreneurs who unfold their true, you know, destiny or higher use to the world in an associative way. So not a cooperative way. One vote, one per person isn't the right way because you want to have fully developed humans who are deeply invested in not only having good interpersonal relationships, but also having a very deep relationship with themselves and understanding how they need to improve as a person as well, not just what you do. So it's so it's got a, you know, a couple of sort of deep, guiding frameworks, you know, around scale, of the size of the thing, around making money must always flow like blood in your body. Yeah. So as soon as you store blood, it will form cancer or it'll clot or whatever. And so you take that, you know, that biomimicry, I suppose, and use that in your business model. So every time you've got a surplus above what your own needs are, then you move it on, you shift it to somewhere else. And, and there's all sorts of really great things when you read Schumacher's A Small is Beautiful book or you read a lot of the anthroposophical books that Snyder wrote and others, Christopher Horton in particular, around the – he's got a great little book called The Right On Business. It is a, it's only a very small book, but what an amazing book around a deeply philosophical approach to business. Mm. Yeah. And what's been the impact of, I guess, in the current environment with COVID on oh, Food Connect? Yeah, really amazing. I mean, obviously, a, a rich trusting network, particularly in Brisbane, because we've set up so many other box systems. A lot of our city cousins have gone on and set up their own box systems or become buyers clubs or whatever else. So we had just this um, highly connected network in Brisbane that just went boom. You know, obviously, some of the hospitality sector went down and we helped them pirouette to doing a box system or they knew enough about us. So both wholesale and retail grew, even though half our customers, like we quadrupled in size during the peak of COVID. It was just, um, thankfully, we'd bought the previous shed or the community had bought us the Food Connect shed a year previously. So we, so we just built cold rooms, five times more capacity than the old ones. We just built packing room, brand new packing rooms. We just um, done this amazing, funky retrofitted office so I was very fortunate that a lot of those ducks had been lined up prior and um, just things, it was just, 
it was so special to watch the networks um, really not only pirouette and do amazing things, but but also support each other across the board. Like farmers were delivering to box systems. Some farmers who were going to farmers markets set up their own box systems and they were supplied by farmers because we've got sort of got a network of a family of farmers who all know each other, you know, from Tenerfield all the way up to um, Bundaberg, out to Gainda, where all the citrus is coming in from. So that network, because we've sort of built all those relationships, they just did all sorts of crazy things in and amongst themselves and all benefited, you know, immensely from it all. Yeah. What do you think drove that, you know, that fourfold increase in demand? What was driving that from? Yeah, I think, well, we just did a massive survey of all of our customers. I mean, we had a massive response because people had a bit of time at home to, to, to yeah. fill in surveys. Yeah. Yeah. So obviously a, a rich trust in us. So they wanted to obviously go to someone they could trust because, you know, in the days when people were buying toilet paper and there was just all these, you know, mad, crazy things happening, people just wanted to know where they could go, where they knew that we had a network of farmers that would be able to feed them. So I think that was a big part of why a lot of people come to us. Obviously, there's a re-evaluation of regional food systems or regional anything regional and anything that's manufactured locally because it was it was a chaotic first month or two when China shut its boundaries and uh, shut its borders and you know no one was allowed to fly in. There was a lot of people going, "Holy Jesus, we need to focus on what's around us and support what's around us because that's that's you know the time of crisis. We all know that that's what's needed. I think. Also, there's a massive amount of awareness in the benefits of local food system or regional food systems, the nutrition side of things. And from a security point of view, I think people just felt more secure by coming to Food Connect because we've been around for so long. Yeah. And how did you deal with you know, that fourfold increase in demand in such a short time frame? How did, yeah, how did you cope with that scale? Yeah. Once again, the networks, we just put the call out. We had vans and people who could drive vans coming from everywhere. We had as I said, a couple of the kitchen tenants who suffered a bit of a downfall during COVID, we just re-employed them while they thought about how do we pirouette our business model to suit the new circumstances. And so they just come and worked. They were on the packing line, pickups. I mean, it was just one of those things where you just had to do what you could do. But because this is our fourth crisis where we just put the call out on social media and people just come running. There's, it's a very nimble. And because we're small or reasonably small, organization people could just slot in and fit in wherever there's no real long delay in in induction processes it's just like come in start you're over there and we'll get to training later on basically or you train on the job mm. yeah because yeah, i know i know even so in in our family our consumption habits changed during the lockdown period and we were very i can't pin down why that was but we also became very focused on helping the local businesses so mm. you know we got to meet the local butcher you know, before we'd order online and we were to just turn up with a bag of stuff and we suddenly became very um hyper vigilant around you know, finding a local baker and the local butcher and you know, even having the actual the owner of the local butcher deliver the meat and tell tell you where the food came from oh we got these lamb chops from um, you know, cow or whatever it was um yeah that, that was it was such a eye-opener to you know, some of these great local businesses and how you can connect with it and i think there's a food connect here in newcastle as well that does we get box deliveries now fruit and veg from all the local farmers and, and milk and all that sort of stuff so that came out of covid in that there's this hyper vigilance around well what can i do to support my local community yeah that's right. And we did the same as a family, Emma and I and the kids. We just really backed in, you know, supporting all the local businesses that, that we buy off 
that Food Connect doesn't supply um, us yeah. with. So, uh, it, it, yeah, it really did bring us, alert us to uh, what, what more can we do to support local businesses? I mean, yeah. Particularly, in, you know, we're in an industrial area. It was so fantastic to see all the, the businesses around us because when we bought the shed, we said we're only going to construct or do any construction with the shed from a one kilometre radius. We're going to use builders and tradies and businesses in a one kilometre radius. And that built just enormous sense of pride and, you know, camaraderie around it. So we were really set for when COVID hit. Mm. Yeah, great. So so where do you see Food Connect in the future? Where's it going? Yeah, we're doing um, a lot of work because out of COVID, I mean, we're already, we had a long-term plan to replicate the Food Connect shed, which is the sort of multifunction, you know, facility or piece of infrastructure, major piece of infrastructure that supports not only food distribution and wholesale retail outfits, but all of the really great makers out there who are still struggling against the the down, down, cheap, cheap of the, the conventional industrial food system. So that model we found is, is fantastic because it lowers the overheads. There's a community ownership. There's a big uh, focus on, on upcycling and, and, and making it as affordable as possible for that purpose. So we are in pretty big expansion plans at the moment, designing that replication model. I say replication in inverted collars because it'll be very much whatever region. And we've had lots of requests from all around Australia, councils, RDOs, RDAs, philanthropists to to make that model available in, in various forms around Australia. So our, our, our big hairy goal is to have not the Food Connect Shed or Food Connect Foundation will own them or, or manage them, but will our big hairy goal is to have 200 food sheds, you know, networked up and down the east coast of Australia, all highly connected and all working collaboratively with each other to give farmers who currently are in a bit of, um, bit of a shaky position because they've got a mainly fo- export focus to give them a market and hopefully turn them inwards to look at their own domestic market and get you know, all of those local, you know, hospitals, particularly around social procurement, hospitals or what they call anchor, anchor institutions, hospitals, councils, prisons, all those universities, all of them buying local food as well as just your highly conscious and awareness eater. Yeah. So so obviously you've had a very interesting journey to get to where you are mm-hmm. today. Yep. And many of the listeners of this podcast, you know, they're starting that journey around, you know, they've seen an opportunity or they've seen some inequality in the world perhaps that they want to fix. What's one piece of advice that you give to someone like that? Follow the energy. Just, you know, don't get too fixed on the outcome. You know, I had a massive dream on my dairy farm. It wasn't just about milking cows either. It was There was a whole bunch of other things. I realized that the dream goes with you, not with the place. So don't get hooked up on where it's going to be. Basically follow your dream, go with the energy and go with the flow. Don't get, because things happen, shit happens. And shit happens for a reason. And generally the shit happens for a really good reason. It's just the Western mind frame tends to get all down and out about it. But I've found that that's, as years go on, I settle more into, okay, that happened. Cool. I wonder why that's happening. Let's go with that. Hmm. Yeah, good advice. Uh, if, if people wanted to learn more about Food Connect, what's the best way for them to? Jump on the Food Connect, foodconnect.com.au or the foodconnectfoundation.org. Dot au, .au or foodconnectshed.com.au. They're both, they're all just Google Food Connect and you'll go in all sorts of, all <laughs> sorts of directions. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, great. 
All right. Well, so we're, we're, uh, we could probably talk all day, but yep. uh, we can't. To the end, unfortunately. So we're going to move into uh, what we call our Mad Minute, which is our uh, five quick questions in 60 seconds. So how about we kick off? So what's the best piece of advice you ever received? Go with the flow. We're doing some stuff with some Indigenous people at the moment, and it really is uh, uh, focus on the relationship first. Yeah, perfect. Uh, what's your favourite business book? Well, it doesn't have to be a business book. It sounds like you've got a heap of them, but yep. what's your favourite? No, I, I still love reading uh, Maverick and the Seven Day Weekend by, by Ricardo Simler. I think it's, you know, it's fantastic. Yeah, great. And when you're a kid, I might know the answer to this, what did you want to be when you grew up? Oh, a, a, a pilot. A pilot? Yeah, yeah. I was fascinated. I wanted to be Biggles. <laughs> yeah, of course, yeah, yeah. Did you uh, have you ever achieved that dream? You mentioned a. I was uh, an aircraft engineer, and I did fly. Yes, I flew a glider. I was a glider pilot for a little bit of time. Yeah, so I did sort of do that. Yeah, just mm-hmm. without a yeah. motor. When I was, I had my first glider lesson when I was fifteen up at uh, wow. Richmond. Yeah, yeah. amazing yeah. experience. Glider, because the 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 instructor in the back thought it'd be funny to forget to tell me I had the controls, and all of a sudden we're pointing straight at the ground. Yeah, that is so. Yep. That is so scary. That bit yeah. is so scary. Yeah. Yeah. He thought it was quite funny. I didn't. Anyway. <laughs> I think my instructor to? did the same. <laughs> yeah, right, maybe it's a glider instructor thing. What's your favorite quote? Buckminster Fuller's quote Don't resist the existing model, create a brand new system that makes the old system obsolete. Awesome. Now, if you go back in time and give your 20-year-old self some advice and you've probably got a heap of it, what would it be? Yeah, it would be don't sweat the small stuff. Just focus on probably it would be don't go hard all the time. Right. <laughs> and, would you, and, and would you have listened? No. Nah. Yeah. <laughs> it's right. like you're on autopilot. You don't really think when you're young, do you? You're just going hard all the time. That's all right. And you, and you know everything as a 20-year-old, of course. That's right. You do. You do. Yeah, so yeah. Yeah. You've been around for 20 years, of course. What else is there to learn? <laughs> That's yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've got this. <laughs> yeah, that's it. Exactly. All right. Well, um, unfortunately, we're out of time, but that's a, a great story. I think, you know, the you know you obviously went through a, a tough journey uh, to get where you are, but as you say, things happen for a reason and you wouldn't be probably where you are today. You're probably still on a dairy farm somewhere um, fighting to try to work out how to make ends meet if what you went through didn't happen. And I think what you guys are doing is uh, amazing. I hope to see those 200 sheds up around in Australia soon. And uh, people listening, make sure you, you connect with the local Food Connect or just connect local. Support yeah, all your local producers, local. local farmers, get down to your local farmers markets, whatever it is, and start looking at where your food comes from. So thank you for joining us and sharing your story uh, with us on the Good Business Podcast. It's been a pleasure, James. Thanks so much, mate. Good talking to you. Now, if you haven't checked out the great resources available on our website, which includes free downloadable worksheets on guides to help you build your own impact business, then head on over to www.bluetribe.co forward slash podcast. And if you like today's episode, make sure you click that like and subscribe button. Coming up in the next episode. That kind of just captures the entire, um, like the entire essence of youth inclusion and sustainable development, right? Because it's like we're talking about the future, but we're not really including the people closest to the future in the conversation. So my guest in the next episode seeks to unlock the power of youth, who are really the custodians of the future, to address the sustainable development goals. Well, that's it for another episode of the Good Business Podcast. I'm James McGregor. Until next time.